Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. Imagine being an LGBT person and you've spent your entire life hiding that. You haven't told your parents, you haven't told your friends, you haven't told your church, you haven't told anybody. It's the deepest, darkest secret that you have. And in order to get your asylum status or your refugee status, now you have to prove it. There's a guy that I've been working with, he's a Nigerian, and he went to his court hearing and he came with another guy. And his attorney said, who is this other guy? And the Nigerian said, he's my friend. And the lawyer said, what kind of friend? And he said, he's just a friend. And I said, is he your boyfriend? He hesitated, he didn't want to answer it. And the lawyer just pressed and said, is this your boyfriend? And finally, the Nigerian said, well, yes. And then he asked the boyfriend, he said, where are you from? And the boyfriend said, I'm from Ghana. And he said, are you also seeking asylum? And he said, yes. And the lawyer said, don't you realize that you can testify for each other? And they had not even thought of that. Their only programming, the only way they knew how to think was to hide, never tell anybody. That's how they'd lived their entire lives. And here we had an illegal system here in this country that was insisting on knowing stuff that they were not used to talking about at all. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported, independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Sarah. On this edition of Outcasting, Outcaster Lucas continues his conversation with Bruce Knotts the director of the Unitarian Universalist United Nations office in New York City. Bruce is a former U.S. diplomat. His areas of expertise include foreign affairs, international LGBTQ work, and climate change. LGBTQ people from elsewhere in the world can face oppressive and even brutal conditions in their home countries. Their best option may be to get out of the country. On this outcasting series, Bruce and Lucas talk about LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers, the issues they face, and the difficulties they may encounter in trying to find a safe place to live. This is the third part of a three-part series. The whole series is available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. In the previous episode, Bruce and Lucas were talking about the difficulties LGBTQ refugees face that their non-LGBTQ counterparts don't. We now pick up the conversation as they talk about what refugees do when they want to leave their home countries. Bruce Knotts, great to see you again. Thank you very much. Good to see you too. Once they leave their country, what is the process like after that? Do you go to a embassy? What do you do? No. And that's a common thought. People think, oh, you just go to the American embassy and say, okay, I want to be a refugee. And the American embassy won't do anything for you at all. You've got to go to UNHCR, to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Hopefully, there's an office of UNHCR in the country that you're in. 
This Underground Railroad that I mentioned out of Iran flows through Turkey, and there are offices in the capital, in Ankara, and also in Istanbul. And so you wind up there and you apply, and then you wait. And it's usually three or four years waiting in Turkey. I mentioned the Iraqi refugees. They actually waited in Syria for four years to get out of there. And finally, UNHCR will look at your degree of vulnerability. After there, four years. And then there are the thousands that don't get the, res, the support and they're waiting in for that status from the UNHCR or just wherever they are. Yes. And the fact that the United States has drastically lowered the number of refugees that we take, of course, is, is horrible because we used to be the largest recipient country of refugees in the world. And we've drastically reduced the number of refugees that we've taken. In fact, the infrastructure that we used to have in this country that would accommodate refugees and help them get acclimated to America is disappearing because we don't, we're not taking any refugees anymore. So those people are getting fired. The, the organizations that were working with these populations are disbanding because they don't have anybody to work with anymore. More and more people are in dire circumstances. And with the change of the United States position, how has that changed your work helping these LGBTQ refugees and just refugees in general? I would say the number of refugees are, are diminishing. Asylum seekers don't really have a quota. An asylum seeker is typically somebody who has money. It's somebody who buys a plane ticket gets an American visa to come to the United States for study or for a conference or for tourism or whatever, and then seeks asylum in this country. So those are the people that I'm seeing more, more than refugees at the moment. So the number of refugees is diminishing and people are forced to become asylum seekers, find the money to pay for these plane tickets because the U.S. just is not accepting refugees or enough refugees anymore in this case. Right. That's terrible. I mean, all the people that can't afford these airplane tickets that are then stuck in whatever country they are, faced with whatever persecution be around them. Yes. Wow. And what are common challenges that LGBTQ, I guess, asylum seekers and refugees face after fleeing once they're resettled in a new country? There's all the, the issues that anybody has to face when they come to a new country. And we have this concept that everybody just loves America and they love to be here. And when I talk to asylum seekers, they don't like our weather. It's too cold. They don't like our food. It's too bland. They don't like the people because they're not polite. I mean, you know, there's a whole list of things that are different and not very pleasant for asylum seekers. So they have to acclimatize. They have to assimilate. They have to learn to eat our food and to dress for our climate and to deal with Americans and all of our quirks. And, you know, they have to get acclimatized to American culture. Most asylum seekers are kind of your upper crust people. They're educated. So they come prepared to do that. They probably have been to America before. So it's not a completely new country for them. And so they adapt pretty quickly and usually do pretty well. Then there's the whole issue of, you know, love and romance and that sort of thing. And they've got to kind of figure out how that all works here in the United States. And what extra challenges do LGBTQ people face when they're coming over here? 
as refugees or asylum seekers. One of the things that I've noticed actually in trials before judges is imagine being an LGBTQI person and you've spent your entire life hiding that. You haven't told your parents, you haven't told your friends, you haven't told your church, you haven't told anybody. It's the deepest, darkest secret that you have. And in order to get your asylum status or your refugee status, now you have to prove it. And they're just not ready for that. And I'll give you an example. There's a guy that I've been working with. He's a Nigerian. And he went to his court hearing and he came with another guy. And his attorney said, who is this other guy? And the Nigerian said, he's my friend. And the lawyer said, what kind of friend? And he said, he's just a friend. And I said, is he your boyfriend? And the Nigerian did not want to answer the question. He hesitated. He didn't want to answer it. And the lawyer just pressed and said, is this your boyfriend? And finally, the Nigerian said, well, yes. And then he asked the boyfriend, he said, where are you from? And the boyfriend said, I'm from Ghana. And he said, are you also seeking asylum? And he said, yes. And the lawyer said, don't you realize that you can testify for each other? You can support each other's claim to be gay because you're in a committed relationship together and you can prove that you're gay by virtue of your relationship. And they had not even thought of that. Their only programming, the only way they knew how to think was to hide, never tell anybody. That's how they'd lived their entire lives. And here we had an illegal system here in this country that was insisting on knowing stuff that they were not used to talking about at all. Wow. And how did this case eventually end up? He's still in limbo. The Nigerian, when he came, he came on a fake Nigerian passport with a fake U.S. visa in it. And when he landed at JFK Airport, the immigration officer said, this is a fake passport and this is a fake U.S. visa. And the Nigerian said, I know I'm fleeing for my life. Well, there's, a, there's an allegation that he committed fraud by using a fake passport and a fake visa. His side said, well, I, as soon as the immigration officer asked me, I told him the truth. Yes, I used any means necessary to save my life. So that case is still pending. It's a difficult case. So it's not just the matter of asylum in his case. It's whether he committed fraud or not. Yeah, but it's just crazy how desperate or what means you have to go to, especially as an LGBTQ refugee fleeing for your life that you have to go through to get to the United States. His stepfather tried to kill him many, many times. And he went to his grandmother, his stepfather went to his grandmother's house and took him and put him in the trunk of the car and was driving him back to Lagos, Nigeria. And when he stopped to get gas, this friend of mine jumped out of the trunk of the car and ran out into a field and actually found a clergyman to help him, which is unusual. Usually clergy are not helpful, but this clergyman actually helped him and actually gave him the fake passport and the fake visa. And he had money sent from his mother who had also left this stepfather because the stepfather was a jerk. It seems was, like it. He was not just trying to kill the, the, the gay guy, but he was also beating up his wife and 
the two daughters that she had, which is usually the case. I mean, if people are jerks towards LGBT people, generally speaking, they're jerks towards everybody. They're jerks towards women, to other minorities. You know, the, the, it's part of a personality system, I'd say. If you have a society that's persecuting LGBT people, you you should be very sure that very soon they're going to be persecuting other people, yeah, women well, and other minorities, and it's, yeah. it's all going to happen, It's and it's all related. Yeah, if LGBTQ people are dying, then you know something's wrong. Yes. So considering the new political climate in the United States and internationally, do you feel like your role has changed at all? It's become harder. I mean, certainly during the Obama administration, we had absolute support of the United States government on all of our international work, not just at the United Nations, but at U.S. embassies around the world. They were sympathetic and helpful to LGBT activist organizations in Uganda and just anywhere. And that's pretty much gone now under this administration. You've got a rise in ethno-nationalism and also religious extremism, I would call it, the International Criminal Court, the the um, Human Rights Commission in Geneva, the United Nations in New York, pretty much are in agreement that human rights trump immigration. The High Commissioner for Human Rights said that children's rights trump border security. Hint, hint. Yes. So, you know, all of these walls that we're building, all of these barriers that we're, we're making towards immigration and refugees and that sort of thing, that's not what the international community has fought for, for for 70 years, 75 years since the Second World War. We've been moving towards a more open society where travel and immigration was freer and, and easier and we seem to be going backwards at the moment. And it's not just this country. It's several other countries as well. And it's quite disturbing. So how have you been adapting to that to continue helping this possibly increased flow of LGBTQ refugees now? Well, I've been working with the countries that are sympathetic. I've been working with countries that I think are on the border to being sympathetic. Taiwan is, I think, one such country. Senegal is another in West Africa. Ghana is another. I mean, um, in Ghana, for example, being LGBT or you know having same-sex relations is not a felony. It's a misdemeanor. What usually happens is that people are, you know, they have to pay bribes. Somebody will come up and say, if you don't pay me so much money, I'm going to tell the university that you're gay and you're going to get expelled from school. So it's not that people are being locked up or persecuted or prosecuted by the government. It's that you might lose your job, you might lose your standing in school, and so it's that level. And the president of Ghana was asked at a news conference recently, and he's, they said, do you think we'll ever have same-sex marriage in Ghana? And he said, yes, not anytime soon, though. And the press went berserk, particularly the religious press. He said, how could you say we will ever have same-sex marriage? And just the fact that he said, yes, sometime in the future, we are going to have same-sex marriage in Ghana, he was just toasted in the press. They just you know, really went after him. But people of that caliber know that sooner or later, they're going to have to come around. They just don't want to. And he faces persecution in such a, quote unquote, like liberal country for LGBTQ people, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, 
So for countries with not direct deadly persecution of LGBTQ people, what can people there do if it's a misdemeanor to be part of the gay community? Can you still apply for refugee status? What do you do? Yes, I've actually helped uh, an asylum seeker from Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, which has no laws at all against being LGBT. Uh, they have no laws against sexual orientation or gender identity. But the society is very unfriendly. He's a fashion designer. He's married to an American guy. And he could not live in Cote d'Ivoire. The society would just make it impossible for him to live there. I testified as an expert witness. I've lived in Cote d'Ivoire. I was at the American embassy in Cote d'Ivoire. And I, I told the judge, I said, there's no possibility for this couple to live and have anything like a decent life in Cote d'Ivoire. He has to leave. He has to get out of there. He has to be here in the United States or some other friendly country. But they can't live as a couple in Cote d'Ivoire. And it's not because of the laws. And I'd say most people, even in places like Chechnya or Russia or Iran, they're mostly not beaten up or arrested or persecuted by their government or by the police. They're beaten up and persecuted by gangs of thugs and neighbors and church people. You know, there are people in their neighborhood that do it. And then they can't go to the police. If they go to the police and say, you know, I just got beaten up because I'm gay, the police then would beat you up and, mm -hmm. and kick you out of there. You would get no help from the police and you would get no help from the justice system. Wow. So in a country like that where you don't have the support of your neighbors, possibly not your family, not your government for sure, what are your options? Get out. You have to get somehow get a plane ticket to file for asylum or you have to go to a second country where you can hopefully find an office. Yeah. And people get on buses. Some people walk. They do whatever they can to get out. And maybe the next country over isn't that much better than your country, but even if it's a little better than your country, it's worth it to take a bus, take a train, you know, hitch a ride, and get out of someplace like Chechnya or Iran or Russia or Nigeria or Cameroon. It's really bad. When I was still in the State Department, I heard about five gay men that had been arrested for being gay and tortured in jail. And they were going to be brought before a judge. So I called the U.S. Embassy in Douala, and I said, you need to have an embassy, U.S. Embassy officer at the trial to ensure that it's a fair trial. Because if you have sort of diplomatic observer looking at the trial, they usually try to be on their best behavior. And so the trial happened. All five men were acquitted and let go. And when they left the courtroom, they were rearrested and put back in prison and tortured again, and one of them was tortured to death. So even when you have a judicial system that does the right thing and acquits them, you're, you're dealing with a society, and, and in this case, a police force, that is out to get their LGBT people. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Lucas is talking with Bruce Knotts, the director of the Unitarian Universalist UN office in New York City, about LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers who must leave their home countries to escape oppression and seek a safe place to live elsewhere. So what methods do you guys use to, I guess, spread information about, like, 
places in Chechnya or or where LGBTQ people are being persecuted because a lot of times it seems like there doesn't seem to be enough information about it. That's true. Um, I went to the 92nd Street Y, and this was on December 19th, so the day after, 2008, the day after this General Assembly resolution, and Christian Amanpour was there from CNN. And I raced to the microphone. I was the first person to ask a question. And I said, do you know that there was a resolution passed yesterday on LGBT issues at the General Assembly in the United Nations? She said, no. And I said, why not? And why is CNN not reporting on the international situation of LGBT people around the world? And she said, I think we'll try to do something on that, which they really haven't. But no, there's a, there's a real dearth of information I belong to something called the SOGI Listserv, SOGI being S-O-G-I, yeah. um, and I get information from around the world, mostly from LGBT people, LGBT sources around the world. So I'm pretty up to the minute on what goes on anywhere in the world. But regular news sources, TV, newspapers, magazines, there's not much information out there. And you really have to go to specialized Sources. I mean, some of the, the LGBT publications here in the United States are pretty good on some of the international issues. They're becoming more attuned. They're members of the same listservs that I am, so they have at least access to the information. But again, you have to go to our communities, press and news sources. I've gone back to some of these sources, and I said, you know, can I quote you? Frank Magisha, for one, who's a great... LGBT activist in Uganda, very early on, um, I wanted to publicize some of the stuff that he had written on the Sogi Listserv, and I said, is that okay? What was some of the stuff that he wrote? It, you know, it was about the persecution. Some of it's fairly public knowledge, but it was about the persecution that was going on in Uganda. Also about some of these court cases. I mean, um, in Uganda and in Nigeria and in Iran and in Russia, you can go to jail for just having the conversation that we're having here. We could be thrown in jail in any one of those countries for just talking about LGBT issues. And in fact, they've had meetings where people are talking about LGBT issues and the whole lot have been thrown into jail just for talking about it. Nobody's doing any sex acts. There's nothing you know weird going on. It's just talking. And what they call that is homosexual propaganda. Just by talking, doing what we're doing right now would be termed homosexual propaganda in places like Russia, and we could go to jail. So I'm currently creating homosexual propaganda. Absolutely, just by talking about it, yes. <laughs> um, so are you afraid? Have you been to Russia or like are you afraid of countries like this then? I don't want to go to Russia. I am, I am afraid. My husband wants to go to Russia because he's got friends there. He's, he works in the fashion industry. And there's some fashion designers. And there's a, there's a very robust LGBT community in Russia. And we actually know some of them. One of them's getting married to an American here very soon. I'm listening to my husband, as I always do. And he's saying, you know, we should give it a chance. Go to St. Petersburg, go to Moscow, and, and just kind of check out the LGBT community there, which we might do. But I will be scared. Because it's like the Stonewall here in New York. I mean, what, what happened with the Stonewall Inn back in the 60s was that people went there to have a good time. 
And they could go night after night after night and nothing would happen. And then one night the police said, let's go roust everybody at the Stonewall Inn. And they go and arrest everybody. And that one night here in New York, the people said, hell no, we're not putting up with this. And they, they rebelled. That was the beginning of the LGBT movement here in America. A lot of countries in Egypt, around the world, there are known gay hangouts or known LGBT hangouts. And people hang out, they drink, they dance, they have a good time, they sing, they have, you know, everything is fine. They do it night after night after night, week after week, month after month, and then boom. All of a sudden, the police come in and arrest everybody and put them in jail for 10 years or 20 years. You know, and you just don't know. And it's that not knowing that is is really awful. That's really insane. So what steps are you taking or are you lobbying for the UN to take in the future to help develop a better position or a better future for LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers? I mean, the main tool that the UN has is blame and shame. And it does a lot of that. There is a global compact on LGBT issues, and that is being signed by businesses. And we are trying to get banks and industries and manufacturers to uphold you know, decent policies of recognizing LGBT rights in the workplace and not investing in countries that persecute their LGBT population. And a lot of companies, Microsoft, a lot of big companies are signing up for this. And there's a lot of evidence that indicates that countries that do persecute their LGBT population take a serious hit economically. They don't get the investment that friendlier countries get. I mean, Uganda, of course, was famous for trying to pass this kill the gays bill, and it lost a lot of investment. And the Kill the Gays bill was actually deemed unconstitutional by the uh, African Court of Justice. They said it wasn't done properly. And Uganda never tried to pass it again, even though they could have. They could have followed the right procedure and passed the Kill the Gays bill. But they took such pressure from not only governments, but also from companies that said, you know, we're not going to invest in Uganda and we're not going to have tourism to Uganda. Why, why would anybody want to go to Uganda where you're killing the gays? And so they didn't pass it. And actually, the Ugandan courts have found in favor of LGBT organizations in Uganda over and over and over again, even though the police and society at large tend to, you know, be really reprehensible. But I often surprise people by saying, if you, if you gave me the choice of dropping me down in Uganda or dropping me down in Nigeria or Cameroon or Iran, I would choose Uganda because Uganda has many very well-funded and organized LGBT activist organizations. There is quite a bit of support for the LGBT community in Uganda that's not available in Nigeria or Cameroon or Iran or Chechnya. Uh, so even though it's no paradise there, there's a lot of support. Bruce Knotts, thanks for joining us for this conversation. Thanks. It's great being here. This has been the third part of a three-part series. You can listen to the entire series on our website, outcastingmedia.org. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. 
This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Dhruv, Alex, Amelie, Andrew, Dante, and Lucas. I'm Sarah. Our executive producer is Mark Sofus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.